back to Common Intellectual. Today we have a very special guest, Thomas Miller. Dr. Thomas Miller is the director of faculty at the graduate school program at Northwestern University for data sciences and a Nursinus College graduate. He and I met by me cold calling him for the annual fund and he is doing some very interesting work around the 2020 election and I can't wait to share it with you all. So without further ado, enjoy the experience. Fine. I can see you. I'm sorry you can't see me at this moment, but we'll we'll do another Zoom when you can see me. Uh, you should have good audio, though. I'm in my vocal booth uh, with the condenser mic and popping screen in front of it, so I'm uh, I'm in good shape here as far as the audio part, which is all we care about here, right? Absolutely. This is a podcast, so no worries on the visuals, and the audio quality is great. I can't believe how this started where you you sh- you shot me a text out of the blue and believe it or not I was thinking of you very recently and it wasn't pertaining to the election but it was pertaining to just me thinking about economics and the people that have impacted me and as I was starting this podcast I thought of you and when you shot me a text about your Twitter page it was great. And, you know, tonight I just picked up the phone and wanted to catch up. I'm so glad you picked up the phone. And that leads us to where we are today. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to be okay. Uh, so as I was saying in, in our earlier discussions, uh, the things that the, the, the media don't normally go into are how you get to where you're at, right? Yeah. So you. So let's let's start with you sending me the text on on the Twitter page, and and the Twitter page is pertaining to your models that are looking at the election and the number of electoral college votes, as you mentioned in a time series model, and it was incredible to look at. I, I want. I do want to hear what you have to say, but I did want to give the audience a little bit of an introduction as to, you know, when, when you sent me it, it was incredible, but I do want to hear how, what your explanation of it is. Cause I know that you have a backing to it, but let's get started as to why you wanted to get into this field and having the, the simulation study, what, what really stuck out to you as well, I need to do something here. <laughs> Well, the, if you look at the current methods that are used in predicting or forecasting elections, there are three general methods. Um, one is historical, where you look at what has happened in past elections. You think about the economic conditions uh, currently in place and you think about the candidates and where they're coming from, their political affiliations, and other things that have occurred in the not too distant past, you know, if there are any scandals, 
um, in you know, associated with either candidates, and and if you know if the parties uh, are challenged by a third party, right? So these are indicators of potential problems, and one of the the leading advocates of that or proponents of that approach, that historical approach is, is Alan Lickman, who has been reported uh, in the media because he's had some success. Uh, he reduces those factors down to 13. And then he just does what we might call a, a scorecard approach, where it's yes or no in each of these uh, factors that he looks at. He calls them keys, the keys to the election. Uh, and he's been doing this for a number of years and he's been accurate for a number of years. Um, I think he arrived at it, as far as I can tell from reading, is he arrived at it by looking at the past and seeing what factors helped to explain presidents that were elected in the past. But he's been also forecasting, okay? So using those 13 keys to forecast what's going to happen next uh, election by election and has with the forecasts as well uh, been quite accurate. <laughs> it's worked out. His, his, his yes, no, or binary um, uh, explanatory variable approach has worked just fine for a number of years. Uh, historical uh, analyses have been around for quite some time. Um, they date back to the, the mid-50s, uh, and uh, they work um, primarily. They do a pretty good job, but they are set up to tell you what's going to happen long before the campaigns begin. <laughs> so if there are any activities during the campaign that could potentially affect the outcome, and I think candidates hope that there are, <laughs> they believe that they are, they certainly spend enough money <laughs> in advertising <laughs> uh, to, to think that the campaign matters, right? Then the historical approach really doesn't uh, work for you. So that's one class of methods. Uh, another is uh, the methods that draw on pollsters' uh, information. Now, uh, opinion pollsters uh, may not like to be characterized as forecasters. Uh, they don't like the idea of contributing to the horse race, <laughs> uh, the mentality that the media takes uh, with with uh, many of these things, um, you know, we're always looking who's going to win, who's going to win. So pollsters might resist that, but it turns out that pollsters' data are used in doing forecasts. And if you look at some of the leading models out there, like, uh, you know, 538 or The Economist, they do, in fact, utilize um, polling data uh, to bring their models up to date, and they're continually revising those polling data as the campaigns progress. Um, now, models that are based on polling data don't do too well when you're looking at, you know, a month or two in advance of the election. 
But if you average across them or average across a subset of trustworthy polls close to the election, a week or two, or maybe just a couple days before, um, then they do pretty well. Uh, even in the, the 2016 election, which I think a lot of forecasters have been taking flack for, um, even there, uh, the polling uh, forecasts in terms of the popular vote, vote uh, were very accurate. You know, they were spot on in terms of the popular vote. Uh, they missed the electoral college. Um, so that's you know, the general, the second you know, approach. Uh, and the third approach, which isn't as well known, and the approach that I am taking uh, is one that builds on uh, prediction markets. Uh, they go by other names or sometimes called betting markets or information markets, futures markets, events markets. But essentially, many people are getting together, <laughs> uh, or I should say many people are individually and as a group um, betting on the elections. And those are, it's a very different source of, of information uh, that we can use to, uh, to anticipate what's going to happen in the future. Well, 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 the thing that really in interests me about this is the electoral college aspect. When, yes. when you talked about that and how you said that they were spot on with the popular vote, but so often we forget that that's not what's deciding the election. And especially when you say you're talking about the polls and you try to take these states on news sources and you have an ability to have a knee-jerk reaction towards who's winning and who's losing in in two seconds so you can see it on tv but when you talk about the electoral college how are you able to read that uh, based off of the information that you're getting and how did you go about finding that valid data source well first of all the electoral college is is the the monster here Let's, let's face it, uh, it's antiquated, it's undemocratic, and it's bizarre. Uh, it has historical value, and it, of course, it's, it's written into our laws, so we, we're stuck with it for now. Um, but it makes things very difficult. Uh, it, first of all, it, it's, it's difficult for each of us as citizens because we understand if we're living, you know, I live in Cal California. I work for Northwestern. Northwestern's in Illinois. Uh, if I lived in Illinois, I'd have the same problem, uh, knowing that my vote really doesn't count. You know, it's a foregone conclusion that those winner-take-all states will go democratic. Um, and, and so your vote, for the president at least, uh, is not really important. Uh, likewise, in many other states, um, they are likely to go Republican. And there's nothing a, a citizen who happens to be a Democrat in one of those states can do about it. Um, so the Electoral College disenfranchises uh, many citizens 
Uh, this is unfortunate. But the other thing it does is it makes it difficult to forecast. It makes it difficult to go from the poles, which are often, most of them, nationwide poles, uh, and the difference between the candidates in the nationwide polls, uh, and go from those to an inference about what's going to happen in the Electoral College. Now, there are state-by-state -state polls that we can attend to and utilize to predict the winner-take-all in those individual states. Um, but note, and I'm sure you have, <laughs> listening to the media, that polls change. And, you know, on any given day, many polls uh, will differ uh, from one another. And the sample sizes in those polls uh, run between 500 and 1,500, say. Um, and there's variability, as you would expect. You know, any student of statistics can tell you that there's going to be sampling variability. Furthermore, most all of those polls, after the data are collected, are adjusted. And that means that an analyst looking over the demographics of the respondents in the poll has utilized his or her professional judgment to decide how to weight the observations so that the results from the poll are more similar to what you would expect if that poll in fact was representative of the voting population. And that means adjustments based on sex, demographics, income level, um, any number of factors that the pollster believes are important. That judgment is critical to the success of the poll, but it also brings into question the polling process itself. And I had um, experience with this uh, back in was 1979, um, there was uh, polling in Minnesota. I was, uh, I had graduated as in my, my doctorate was in psychometrics at, at that time. It's before I had my training in economics, but I was coming out of that program and in Minnesota, they had a, a horrible failure in, in a poll. And uh, I, along with a, a colleague, uh, made a proposal to the uh, Minneapolis uh, Tribune to study their methods. Uh, we didn't win that, that uh, particular bid, but the, the firm that did, the organization that did out of uh, University of Michigan, as it turns out, uh, discovered that the reason the poll was wrong, <laughs> its forecast horribly wrong, was the well-meaning uh, uh, pollsters, uh, at least the people who are working with the polling data um, to report it to the media, um, adjusted the data. Uh, they did not do it intentionally. <laughs> you know, to, they didn't mean to make it wrong, but they did um, using their own judgment. Um, 
and this can happen. So polls are, are problematic. They're expensive, they're slow, uh, they're subject to great sampling variability, and just about every one of them requires at the end some kind of adjustment. And that means an analyst is involved in coming up with the, the, the results that are reported to the media. You had your degree in psychometrics and not even in economics at this point. So that was my first, my first, my first graduate degree. Yes. So what gave you the credibility to, to run this study and how long had you been doing this to, to be able to place a bid to do this for the Chicago Tribune? It's, it's a big taking, I'm sure. Oh, at that time uh, I had, I had my doctorate in hand and I was working with a colleague uh, and together we felt we could figure it out. <laughs> we could figure it out. Uh, we knew about measurement and we knew about sampling. Uh, and we had a general understanding of, of the polling process. Um, you know, this, we're talking about measurement, we're talking about surveys. Um, and this is something that psychometricians do. We, we try to understand opinion and behavior, attitudes, behavior. Um, so we were schooled in, in measurement and, um, and using those credentials, we made the proposal. What was the adjustments that they made that you found in, in the voting polls and the forecast that ended up hurting? Uh, I, I cannot remember the details of what, what, what it was. I can just tell you that the pollsters who collected the data turned the data over to the Minneapolis, to the, to the Minneapolis Tribune. And then people at the, at the tri Tribune who were the analysts involved uh, adjusted the data because of um, the lack of representativeness of the sample. And this is typical. This process is typical of polling. Um, rarely will you have a sample, and these are samples, you know, as, as I said before, 500 to 1500, and rare will, rarely will you have a sample that is in fact representative of the population. Um, so you need to adjust uh, because there are well understood differences between men and women, uh, between lower income and higher income, uh, you know, any number of demographic factors, uh, ethnicity, race, all of those can affect um, voting behavior. So you have to do what you can uh, to ensure that the, the poll, the data that you're reporting, the results you're reporting are in fact uh, what you would expect uh, from uh, likely voters. Right. And you have that step. And since moving down to Atlanta, Georgia, I have a, a personal story as well, where I went to vote back in June. And <laughs> my, my friend who I was volunteering at the polls with, she had no line at her voter booth. And I had a three hour line at my voter booth. My. And you could tell people were frustrated, but then you got inside and there were glitches going on. There were people frustrated with the check-in process. And it's, it's so obvious when you just see the contrast at the polls on voting day. So completely aside from the science, it's something that, at least in my experience, that was something very obvious. And 
can sway elections based on where you live. And as you mentioned, one of the variables being income, it's something that you have to be aware of. And then you take it up a level to the electoral college and it becomes that much more difficult to predict, especially when it can come down to a few thousand votes. Indeed it can. Uh, in, I think that we need to think long-term uh, in turn, you know, as far as the, the voting process itself and make it easier for people to vote. You know, it's especially difficult these days when many of us are, are, are wary uh, of the, the pandemic uh, and, and don't really want to be in public or close to other people. Um, and why we're making it more difficult to vote <laughs> is a mystery to me. Well, maybe not too much of a mystery. I guess there are some who benefit from that, but, but I think that we need to, to think in terms of the democratic process. If we're going to be a democracy, we have to think about everyone having a vote. And in the long run, uh, having a one person, one vote uh, system, that means in the long run, it's not going to happen overnight for sure, uh, getting rid of the electoral college or at least moving in that direction. Now, there is some uh, hope um, if you look at two states in particular, uh, Nebraska and Maine, um, they have divided up their states. So Maine now has three electoral college markets and Nebraska has four. Um, so they can in fact split their votes. Um, if all states did that, we would be approaching a democratic system where your votes would indeed count uh, wherever you happen to live. That's interesting because I feel as though when, when even though you have a population, and if you're going to have the number, either no matter how large or how small, why do you still think it is important to have that electoral college, even if it isn't the electoral college mindset, how, why do you think it's important to still have that number value for, like you mentioned, Nebraska and Maine as they make that shift? Why is that still important? Well, I, I'm not arguing that the Electoral College is important, um, but I would argue that it's hard to get rid of it. <laughs> it's a major ordeal. Um, and because many states benefit from it, right? Your vote counts a great deal mm -hmm. more if you live in Montana than if you live in California. Um, so it's hard to get Montana on board uh, for getting rid of the Electoral College. I'm just using Montana as one example. You know, there are many states like that, that where your votes count. If you happen to be a member of the party that's likely to win, <laughs> your votes count more uh, than they would anywhere else. Um, but the, the examples that I provide with Nebraska and, and Maine show you that there is a way for state legislatures to enact a procedure where winner take all is divided up. 
okay, into smaller blocks, four in Nebraska and three in Maine. And, and that allows Nebraska and Maine to have split. So you might have um, a situation where some of the votes that the Nebraska um, markets cast are for the Democratic ticket and others for the Republican ticket. Uh, it can happen. Uh, and if all states did that, then we would have, we would be moving in the direction of, we wouldn't be close, but we'd be moving in the direction of a, a one person, one vote, you know, democracy. Interesting. And, and, ex and what exactly are you doing, going back to your modeling, explain to the audience exactly what you're doing with uh, simulations, the frequency, and what it's actually telling over this time series. And for the audience, the time series is over a period of time. And that, and that is, I guess, the simpler version of it. But do you mind explaining a little bit about uh, some of the details of it? Well, let's start with the Electoral College. Yes. Um, because that's what we've been talking about. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the fly in the ointment, as they say. We'll get back to the fly later. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the, the Electoral College makes it hard for us to, as individual citizens, predict what's going to happen. So we hear that there's a, there's a poll and Biden is up eight points. So that was a nationwide poll. Fine. We might expect that he'll be eight points, you know, plus or minus three ahead of Trump. Uh, in the popular vote. But we what, have and no what do the idea about the electoral vote, electoral vote. Right. Exactly. And so what do the points what do the points even signify if if you're not able to know what the electoral college is going to be. Well, it gives people something to talk about at least. <laughs> but do and we even they, know what they are? Well, what we know th is this, that the higher that differential between the Democratic and Republican tickets, the higher the differential, the more likely the leading ticket will win. That we do know. And if we see the differential going from 4% to 8% to 12%. I guess recently we saw one side, what, 14%? Uh, when you see it going in that direction, you have a sense that the election is moving in that direction. So relative to one, you know, to, in, in time, you have a sense. But none of us has the intellect regardless of our Mensa scores or whatever, you know, our GREs or for college students, regardless yes. of our, our scores, none of us has the intellect to process the complexity, um, the Byzantine structure of the Electoral College. None of us. You need a computer to figure out what's going to happen in the Electoral College. So the way my model works is I take every single electoral market, there are 56 of them. So you've got 48 states, you have four regions in Nebraska, you have three regions in Maine, and you've got the District of Columbia. So 56 markets. 
I have pricing data from predictit.org. It's publicly available data. And pricing means? Predictit.org is, is the um, organization. It's a nonprofit uh, based out of New Zealand. It's, it's hosted by a, a university in New Zealand. And, and sorry, just to go back, what is the definition of pricing? You mentioned that it was pricing data. Yes, these are prices. Okay, so let's say you, let's say you want to place a bet. You're a potential investor or better. And you, you look at the, the general market, and there, you, know, you, could, you could bet on Biden, Harris, or, or Trump, Pence. And you see that Biden-Harris today is, say, 70 cents, and, and Trump-Pence is 30 cents, let's just say. And you've got money, some discretionary income. So, and you look at those prices and you think, well, hmm, do I think Biden-Harris have a 70% chance of winning? Hmm, is it that high? I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I think maybe they have an 80% chance of winning. 70, 70 cents sounds pretty good to me. So I'm going to bet on Biden-Harris, understanding that if, in fact, Biden-Harris, the Biden-Harris or Democratic ticket wins at the end of this, when the election is officially determined, and of course, we don't know exactly when that's going to be this year, but when the, when the election is, is finally officially determined, I will get a dollar back, and I will have made 30 cents, and actually, that's a pretty good return for a three-week bet. Pretty darn good return. Invest 70 cents, get a dollar back. Now, you do get charged a 10% commission and you get charged a 5% fee when you take your money out. But even after that, you still made money. And you're more money than you probably make in a stock market. So these are markets, just like other markets. Uh, you aren't buying a share in a stock, so you don't own anything. But just like other markets, you're hoping the price that you pay going in is lower than the price, the, the value, the money you get going out, right? So you compare the prices that, that when you go in and the prices when you go out. You're hoping for a appreciation of your investment, an increase in value. Um, in that regard, they're just like any other investment. Put your dollars in, get your dollars out, and hope you get a good return. Now, imagine that each investor in every market has a limit, and we do. In the predictit.org, that limit is $850. In the Iowa electronic markets, which is another way of betting in politics, the limit is only $500. So there is this assurance by virtue of the bets being small that you will have many, many people investing and you're unlikely to have the large wealthy investors controlling the market. 
Jeff Bezos cannot buy these tickets with his money. Okay. Well, he can buy $850 worth. There you go. Okay. In every market, just like all the rest of us can. Okay. So that's a, that's a way of protecting these markets against the influence of wealthy individuals. Um, the, um, the market is open to anyone worldwide. That could, you could view that as a negative because it's not open just to likely voters, that's for sure, okay? Anyone in the world can, can invest. Uh, it's also a known observation from the Iowa electronic markets and studies that have been done on them that a small percentage, maybe as many as 20% of the betters or investors are programmatic or robots doing the investing. So you might not even have humans <laughs> investing, not even people investing. It could be robots that are following the orders of people. Um, <clears throat> betters are typically more male than female, higher income rather than lower income, more highly educated than the average or typical uh, citizen. So they are unlike the population. They are not representative and should not be viewed as representative. Nor are these people betting using their preferences. When you see 70 cents, you see 30 cents. If you really wanted Trump to win, okay, but you believe that Biden was worth more than 70 cents, you'd still bet on Biden, right? Because you don't want to lose your money, okay? So the proposition is different from, you know, pollster asks you if the election were held today, for whom would you likely, you know, which ticket would you more likely vote for, okay? Uh, how would you cast your ballot, okay? So they're asking for your opinion, your, your attitudes about the candidates and the way you'd like well, you'd like the election to come out. Okay, that's a different proposition from a betting market where you're asked, what do you believe about the market? What do you think's going to happen? These are not insignificant markets though. The current number of investors, active investors uh, is over a hundred thousand in predictit.org alone. And there are others. Okay. Uh, predictit.org is a nonprofit, New Zealand based. Uh, there's a Belfair um, around the globe. Okay. And they are for profit. Uh, turns out that, you know, I've kind of compared these and, and when you translate the the dollars in the predicted.org to probabilities of winning, and you translate the odds that are given on Belfair into pro probabilities of winning, the probabilities of winning correlate 0.997. So they're almost perfectly correlated, wow. although their markets are around the globe from one another uh, with very different you know, management and objectives by the managers. One's nonprofit, the other's for-profit. Mm -hmm. 
Um, no arbitrage opportunity here. You can't sell in one and buy in the other and make money. They're pretty much in sync. So you only need one of them. And that's, that's what I, I chose the one. I chose predicted.org because it has information about every single electoral market, all 56 of them. That makes sense. And so then how did you formulate your variables and what are the, what's the frequency of running this, this model? Well, out of, so every hour <laughs> I collect the prices. Okay. Every hour I collect the prices from all 56 markets. And I know how many electoral college votes are associated with each of those markets. So I run the election. I just run the election based upon the probability estimates and the votes. Then I run it again. Then I run it again. Then I run it again. It's a simulation. It's a Monte Carlo study. I run it one million times every hour. And out of those data, I obtain the prediction. And at 7.28 and 23 seconds p.m. Pacific on October 3rd, I determined that the Democratic ticket had, a 90, had an 89% probability of winning the election. And I compute from all those, from the million, I compute confidence interval, I can tell you I'm 90% confidence interval. The Democratic electoral votes are between 253 and 372. It's a 90% confidence interval. Well, 252 isn't 253 isn't too far away from 270, is it? No. <laughs> okay. I'm 95% sure that the confidence that the interval goes from 240 to 383. 95% confident of that. And 240 isn't too far from 270. It's a, it's a Texas away. Texas has 35 votes, right? Yeah, how much does it vary per, not similar, I mean, are you, so I'm, I'm looking at one of your models now. How often are you running these time series? Is it, I'm seeing one from Maybe. September 29th to October 13th. How, I'm sorry, how long are you, or, how long is your model being defined for when you're putting up one of these models well, over time? Well, every dot, every point on that time series of forecasts is representative of the median that I've observed across 1 million hypothetical elections. And why did you choose median instead of any other mode of don't mean to be a pun there but well you can uh, but okay. if you look at the distribution you know and, and knowing your statistics mm -hmm. from the central limit theorem um, the median and the mode on a normal distribution are are equivalent so i, I describe it as the median um, and but it, you could just as easily call it the, the mean <laughs> or the average mm -hmm. um, and, and um <clears throat> It is a point estimate as opposed to an interval estimate. And the interval estimate gives you a sense for uncertainty. We all have uncertainty. And probability is a, you know, a description of uncertainty. 
Uh, the interval estimate is a, a, a way of characterizing uh, your uncertainty. Um, we want to be good you know, statisticians as we do our work. But let's face it, people want a number. <laughs> the public wants a number. That's so if they want a number, I'm going to give them a number. Okay, and the easiest number I can give them, the easiest thing for someone to understand is the number of votes. So I translate everything into the number of votes. And as a result, I can tell you exactly how many votes an event is worth, you know, depending upon how the window around it. Okay, so if we take the, the presidential debate, you can see where the Democratic number of Democratic electoral votes sat before the debate, you know, during the debate, an hour after the debate, two hours after the debate. You could go how many hours you want to go. You know, I think in terms of maybe a five or an eight hour window around an event, assuming no other significant events have occurred, to judge what that event uh, is worth. And, and that presidential debate so far in this election has been the most important thing in the election. Um, also very important, if you look at the series, was when Trump tweeted that he was, he had tested positive for COVID-19. In fact, during that very hour, the predicted electoral votes went up five, five for the Democrat. Wow. And you can see it right on the plot. You can, and it's right after the debate as well. I'm it's looking after at the, the yeah, yeah. It's so <laughs> significant, and you talked about the events that happened directly after. You have something as polarizing as Trump being diagnosed with COVID. It's it really sways the votes, and and it happens in such a short time frame as well. It happens in a short time frame. That was an especially. I guess that's the largest one-hour jump. You know, they, we've observed in this election so far. And you notice that after that, it still went up one, two, three, four points. You know, so a few hours, about you know, five hours after, it was still up four more points. So you're talking, you know, nearly a 10 point shift uh, in the likely, in the, in the number of electoral votes associated with the Democratic candidate. And, what, and what's happening, think about the process, okay? The betters, you know, like any of us, you know, any of us can be betters. We're watching everything that's happening in the world. Okay, we have all of our experience, years of experience, that you know, our life experience and what we've seen in past elections. We have everything we see in the media. We already know about the polls. That's part of what we're processing. Okay, and so all that goes into our information store individually, and then individually using that information that we as individuals have, we make a decision as to what we're gonna bet on, which ticket we're gonna bet on. And everyone's doing that. And the people who are watching MSNBC are doing that. The people who are watching uh, uh, Fox are doing that. The people who are watching The Hill are doing that. People are listening to N NPR are doing that. Everybody's doing that. You know, anybody who wants to bet can bet. You know, it can be living in, in London and listening to the BBC. Okay, you have an opinion too. You have an idea about the world too. You have a right to bet too, and you do. Okay, everybody does. And so the market is this beautiful information machine 
brings all that information together. And so we have what some have described as the wisdom of the crowd. Okay? It's the beauty of a market. And it's what you learn, as you know well, Elliot, you know well from economics. You, you gain an appreciation for markets and, and, and their value, in, in a sense, predicting the future, yes, and value in, in bringing all this information together. And to me, an information market, prediction market, a betting market, see, to me, is a better source of base data based upon, as it is, more than 100,000 information processors than any political or opinion poll. Wow. And just to give the audience an understanding, what is the sample size of the poll data that they're gathering right now that supposedly formulates the point system that we see on our media? It's between, I would say between 500 and 1500. Many of them are right around a thousand. And that's a number that's been determined many years ago um, because it happened to give a decent uh, confidence interval around a, a binomially distributed random variable, <laughs> to be specific. But, but what is the statistical <laughs> significance of a thousand when you're talking about millions of votes? Well, you know, be, be careful. Um, the sample, I think the sample size that we're talking about here is impressive. Okay. okay. But, but we should be careful um, that the sample size is not the only desideratum here. Okay. The, the sample size is one thing to think about. Um, uh, back in the, the, uh, the classic elections, what the, the Truman-Dewey election, and you know, you, you hear about these, these stories, right? Things went wrong. Why did they go wrong? Uh, and there are lots of stories about uh, sampling issues with polling. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Gallup um, became well-known and well-respected uh, because Gallup developed sophisticated sampling procedures. And Gallup could go in with a sample of a, of a thousand and do a better job of forecasting than in one case, the Literary Digest did with many, many more individuals. So be careful about the sample size. I, I use that, I, I, I emphasize the sample size because it is so very different. But I, I believe that it's more the information value uh, than the sample size. Um, it's the, the the nature of the question, you know, as a pollster comes to me, ask me my opinion. Okay, I give you my opinion. That applies to me and me alone. Okay, but as a better, I bet on what I believe to be the truth, which goes beyond me. It goes beyond my political proclivities. Okay, and what I would like to see happen, it goes to what I think will happen. So I think even if we had comparable, even if the prediction market were based on a thousand and the poll were based on a thousand, I'd still believe the prediction market. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. And it makes complete <laughs> sense because we are in unprecedented times right now. We are in a pandemic and in the middle of 
social injustice, and the world has never seen something like what is about to happen in the United States of America. And you're absolutely right. When you can see the prediction over, like, you're absolutely right. It goes beyond anything that you see at the polls. It's what you actually think. Yes. It's, you know, it's, it's an information machine. And why more people don't take advantage of it, I'm not sure. You know, I think it may be a lack of understanding. There may be also, I mean, some, some of it uh, is contracts and relationships and so on that media may have with pollsters. Uh, but I think there's also still um, a, a negative, you might describe it as puritanical <laughs> uh, reaction to betting. You know, betting's you know, evil, bad, sinful, people shouldn't bet. Um, well, got news for you, people do bet. Okay? <laughs> people have been doing betting for a long time. You know, there's an article by you know, Rode and Strump in, uh, in uh, economic literature, it goes back to, into the, it was published in Journal of Economic Perspectives in 2004, that goes back into the history and shows that betting on political polls was recorded back in 1884. In fact, betting on political polls was more popular <laughs> than many other things. It was even uh, it was available before there was betting on sports, you know, outside of horse racing. Horse racing's been around forever. In fact, in 1916, okay, that's the the, the uh, the Woodrow Wilson election, um, according to, to, to Rode and, and Strunk, uh, there was more money bet on that election than was spent by both political parties combined. There was more money bet on that election than was invested in the stock market over the same period. So these things have been around for a long time. And guess what? The data show they're better than the polls, okay? That's crazy. And you have the data to back it up. How, how can you ignore that? And it's, it's something that you, you can prove. And I'm going to say it again. It goes beyond what your personal beliefs are. It is what you think of the election. So obviously that's a great simulation and a great model. And you've had, you've had experience for, with this for years. Your credibility is there. And still, you don't have an ability to display this for media. Well, I confidence that the word's going to get out. <laughs> Me too, and I hope that this can help. Yeah, this 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 might help. Um, most of the the media or everything is condensed down into much shorter segments. And you have the ability, uh, you have control over over your productions, and you can make it a longer segment. So there's more explanation. Um, but many are looking for the soundbite and the and the the shorter, you know. Uh, analysis, the bottom line, so to speak. Uh, but to, you know, the bottom line in this case is one that I think most people can understand. They, they can just look at those points in the chart and they can look at the events on the chart and they can see that if indeed you can update your forecast every single hour, as I can, 
then you can understand the effect of campaign events or news events on the election. You know, so I've got, a, I've got essentially, a, I've got a five day advantage uh, on the pollsters, you know, and the modelers who base their results on the pollsters. I, can, could, t I could tell you very shortly after the Trump-Biden debate that Biden won. I could tell you very shortly after the recent VP debate between Harris and Pence that neither won, that it was a draw. Because for five hours after, full five hours after, there was absolutely no change in the electoral college votes forecasted. Uh, and it went down one, and then finally down one, after about seven hours, down two, then back up to one. So the difference was not much, and for five hours, it was nothing. Uh, so mm -hmm. I call that a debate, a, a, a draw, right? I call that debate a draw. And how did you determine the five-day advantage over... I just waited until uh, 5.38 came out with its analysis. Okay, and so how are you able to do that and... And I can't say that all media has shut you down. You were just telling me about your presentation with the BBC, which is incredible. And I also want to get into that and how was that experience? And also what has been some of the negatives with the media around when, when you're trying to get your information out there? Well, it's, it's not always easy to get to people. Um, and often if you get to people with an op-ed, example, and I've written uh, an op-ed uh, called All Bets Are Off and tried to get it published, and uh, I went to a number of the traditional media. I won't list them, uh, but I went to a number of the traditional media and, and was uh, rejected uh, by all of them. Uh, so there's, I think, um, a way of doing things, and there's comfort, maybe comfort because they're used to it, not comfort because they fully understand it, but comfort, comfort because they're used to it in working with the tradition, the already existing polls. And there may also be relationships between the media organizations and the polls, um, the business relationships that are developed over the years. Yes. So, you know, an up and coming person uh, in terms of political forecasting, um, is, a new method may not be well understood. Are you, are you new in this? I wouldn't say that you're new in this, but you have credibility from not only the work that you've done, but also the university as well. I feel like there's no reason why they shouldn't be listening. Well, I'm, I'm known within the data science community, uh, having published in that and having, you know, had led the, the uh, as faculty director of the data science program at Northwestern University. And I've been doing that for more than 10 years. It was originally called predictive analytics. So I, you know, I do have credibility as a, a academic professional. Um, you know, ac academics are not always um, treated with, you know, with, with awe, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> We're not always, always uh, um, dealt with, you know, in the media the way we might like. I think there's a lot more, you know, focus on opinion more than fact. Uh, I like to, you know, look at forecasts and, and um, models in general. I, whenever I'm looking at a study, I, I ask myself, 
well, how much of it is driven by the data and how much of it is driven by the opinion of the analyst? I think any economist asks that question. We, we learn through the, the courses that we take, the, the exercises we go through to question. And I remember the book, Every Data, that we read and had case study after case study. And they, I remember just watching Netflix and seeing the, uh, the Challenger, the rocket that exploded. And I remember reading about that in every data where the, the O-rings, they would expand in different temperatures and they didn't test it. And they just said, we're going to run it. And I remember reading about that. And it's like, you have to question everything. And if you don't get the full scope, then you're not doing your job. And that's the economist mindset. Well, I think, you know, journalists who are well-trained have that mindset too. Um, to seek out the truth, you know, to report on facts, and, and to remove themselves in terms of their own attitudes and what they would like to have happen, okay, to remove themselves from their reporting. Um, and you know, that's this, the, the role of science, isn't it? And the respect that, that we should have for science is that it's, it's based upon fact. And if you have a belief that you construct into an, a, a, a hypothesis, then you, you apply an appropriate method to test it. Um, you know, we have, even within academia, uh, we have experienced the, the postmodern movement. Uh, we have a, maybe not a perfect analog of that, but to some extent, uh, a reflection of that in, in the Bayesian movement where you have priors, right? Um, and you might influence an analysis by stating your priors and, and in a very sharp way rather than in a, in a diffuse <laughs> uh, way. Um, but there, you know, there are ways of being more true to the data. And that's what I try to do in my work is let the data drive it. Yes, I have selected the data source. It happens to be a predictive prediction market. That's a decision I made. And yes, I've decided to do a Monte Carlo simulation. And yes, in doing that simulation, I've made decisions about the nature of my random number generators. Yes, the, that method is, is in place. But after that, you know, I just let the data drive it. Okay, 56 markets, an election, an election, an election, a million of them. And then I just analyze those, those data at the end. Um, so I'm not making assumptions about how one market relates to another. Uh, I'm actually treating them as independent of one another. Uh, although, in fact, there are correlations. Uh, but I let the data drive that. Um, and... In that, in that way, regardless of what happens, you know, I'm going to be, you know, a reporter. <laughs> Report on the results, regardless of what they are. They happen to be right now uh, in favor of the Democratic ticket. But, you know, most recently, I see a downturn. If you look at the, at the plot there, um, there was a downturn, you know, shortly after that Democratic debate. Uh, Trump went on 
Rush Limbaugh for two hours, you know, and there's the impression, okay, he's back. He's not going away. He's going to actually campaign. So the betters think, well, he's got a hard chance or the betters might be changing from one ticket to another. There's a lot of that going on too. And you're day trading in these markets. And then you saw that he had a White House rally. And, and, and again, it went down further. Until, curiously enough, <laughs> Saturday Night Live came on with The Fly. And this is one of the few examples uh, where, you know, where we have and the effect of comedy on an election, potential effect of comedy on an election because the fly reversed the trend for a bit. <laughs> and, and the pattern went in favor of the Democratic candidates uh, after the, uh, the fly. Um, that was the VP debate uh, that, that satirized the fly on, on Pence's head. Um, and it was viewed within the first day um, by six million on YouTube. So you had the show and I knew exactly when the show was, so that defines the line. And then you had within a day, six million views on YouTube. And six million, that's a decent enough number. And then of course the, the betters, have, you know, they're aware of it. They're aware of the influence. They're aware of, you know, the the effect of that comedy skip. And they think, hmm, well, that changes things. Um, it was looking like Trump was back in action, but now we have a perspective, you know, from artists, from comedians in particular, um, and, and that changed the market. It changed the, the information that was available. And that short trend, which continued, you know, for about a day, continued right up until uh, the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, where again, we have a shift in the other direction. And now you have, you know, fewer Democratic electoral votes. And that's been a consistent pattern now for two days. You know, going from what, you know, around what, 319 uh, down to 312. So something's going right uh, for the Republican ticket as a result of these hearings. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, we don't have to explain it, but we can just observe it and say something's going right. Right. And it, it's, it's so interesting to see how these moments define where betters think that the election is going. And when you see that shift so dramatically, and as we're seeing it currently now, and then you, you saw it with the SNL skit, you just know that there is data around it to formulate it. And when you went on the BBC, what did you try to do to explain it in such a short segment to really make this an effective pitch for the world? Well, I told that was a you know, few days ago when I was interviewed, actually broadcast today. Um, but I told them about my personal experience. I was working with the data, as I often do, I'm watching the data, watching the time series, and doing my thing, you know, coming and trying to come up with some new algorithm and different way of doing the simulation that might even be better. And in all of a sudden, 
I, I all of a sudden, well, over a few hours, I see, I see a jump. And I, I, I didn't have the news on. So I think, my goodness, something happened. <laughs> and lo and behold, it was Michelle Obama. You know, so after those, it was about five hours after when I saw the jump, I couldn't believe it. I went back and, and, and listened and turned on the news and it was Michelle Obama's message. Uh, so it's, um, after a while you come to believe this stuff. <laughs> you look at it and, and you try to, you know, understand what made it happen. You know, and I, when I, I tweeted about the SNL effect, you know, I asked, I just, you know, posted, you know, I, I'm posting about every hour. Um, that I, I asked, I haven't heard any explanation, you know, what could have happened, you know, like with the Saturday Night Live, you know, it wasn't too much that happened between that skit, you know, and the next day, you know, it was a slow day, it was a slow news day. I didn't see, you know, anything significant happening in terms of the campaign. So that is the, the fly. I call that the fly effect. Yeah, and that's incredible. And so did they directly ask you about this at the BBC? And and how did you condense it to say, these events are really changing the course of what this election outcome could be? And again, as you mentioned earlier, we don't know when we're going to get the final results of this election. So <laughs> that's another factor that you have to throw in here that it's like, oh my gosh, these times are really crazy. And yeah. you get to see event by event, betters just being like, okay, they have a chance. They don't have a chance. Well, yeah, also, Elliot, um, these, these betters, people like us, are aware of the efforts to suppress the vote. So when they see things happening in terms of you know, polling places shut down or, or the mail being delivered more slowly um, or disenfranchisement of, of voters, uh, any of those, right, they could also affect the election. But that's part of our information world. We're aware of that. And we process that too. And no poll will process that. But the information markets do. The prediction markets do. And when you're able to go to the BBC and say those things, it gives a perspective that I think very few people here can understand because they're so used to getting the second by second updates if they want it. And it's just not backed by the same data that yours is. Yours is like you mentioned, running millions of simulations every day. And if you want an hour by hour, you're giving a source and it's, it's crazy how much, it has shifted and it really goes to the times we're in now where you have the power of the media and you also have the power of social media. And it really goes to who has the most money and people are clamoring for answers right now during a pandemic. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I think you know, having information more quickly is of value. Um, you know, I, I would expect, I would hope that if the campaigns are, are thinking, uh, they will look at this and use it to evaluate their campaigns and their campaign activities. It's, it's current information. Um, it's not opinion. It's current information. It's a way of taking the betting markets and presenting them in a way that makes sense directly um, because it is in fact doing the electoral college thing. Okay? Now you can go to the betting markets and like I was describing before and, and bet on a winner take all general, the general election. Okay? But even that is off. You know, talk about a, an arbitrage opportunity. Okay? If you look at the prices that are being, uh, being bid in the uh, winner-take-all market, they are different from the uh, probability of the candidates winning. So there is currently <laughs> an arbitrage uh, opportunity, even within the betting markets themselves. Now, the other thing I like about, you know, the thing I have, have um, you know, a positive feeling for is the fact that, you know, if someone's going to bet on the North Carolina election. Now, I would think that that person is more informed about North Carolina than I, than either of, of us would be, right? Because we don't live in North Carolina. I mean, we haven't that experience of what North Carolina politics is all about. But a better puts money down on the North Carolina electoral college market on that contract, we would think would know it better. And that would be true for all 56 markets. Those people would know it better, would know those individual markets better. And as a result, you know, you should get a better result at the end. Now, econ economists believe in this stuff. Okay, we, you, I don't have to convince you, you, you have training in economics. But economists have, they believe in this stuff. Back to, to uh, science in, in 2008, uh, there were what, 17 highly regarded economists. Uh, it's an article by Arrow et al. in 2008 Science that argues in favor of information markets and the value of information markets in predicting the future. Uh, that particular article uh, cites the Iowa electronic markets, which have been around for, for a while. And it also allows for, like you mentioned, the human side of it to be a factor, to be a variable. And the reason that we met was because of our Ursinus connection. I contacted you for the annual fund and gave you a call. And we talked for, it had to have been 30 minutes about your background in data science and being able to create something out of Ursinus that wasn't even your background. Your major at Ursinus, if I'm correct, was philosophy. Yes. And so you are able to, from that, at a school that to this day is still very philosophical, really hone in on that human element that gives validity to your models. And if people want real information, 
then they should be getting it from a source that incorporates that. And I just wanted to give you props on everything that you have formulated because you have included a factor that many people don't account for. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, on the, you might say that I'm afflicted uh, with academic insatiability syndrome, I guess. Because <laughs> I, I, I went on from Ursinus to other degrees, but I, I value that experience, that early experience. And by the way, when I was at Ursinus, one of my fleeting majors was political science. Um, hmm. and yes, you know, we, I, my, one of my favorite professors was a, uh, was a he taught the political theory, um, and we studied you know John Stuart Mill and all that good stuff, um, and and that was um, a fleeting major. I also majored in 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 German for a bit. Um, the the first German instructor was a wonderful guy, you know, 70. Uh, um, yeah, his wife was about 40. He was about 70. And he had this, this, this joy for life. And he taught the first, uh, the first German course and also the Swedish course, which I ended up taking. So I, I did change my major to German at that time. And then I found out that the other uh, instructor who taught all the advanced German classes was, although he was okay and very kind in a way, he was also kind of a Prussian drill sergeant uh, type. <laughs> so I changed my major <laughs> from German, it turned out, to philosophy. And uh, philosophy gave me a chance to do a lot of writing. And uh, uh, my advisor was uh, Gerald Han Hinkle. He's no longer around. He was a great guy. Um, but um, a person who valued diversity and and listened to everybody and gave you a lot of good advice. Um, I had him initially for my English composition class as a freshman. I decided, I like this guy. And so when my third major was philosophy, <laughs> I changed over to philosophy and, and stayed there toward the end. And of course, there you, 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 have, you have logic, you have mathematical logic, so there was a, a, a bit of mathematics involved. I took the, what they, do they still have CMP, chemistry, math, and physics? I took that series uh, because I had, a, I, have an interest, I had an interest in philosophy of science. I did a, my thesis, uh, undergraduate uh, thesis was on Bertrand Russell and Bertrand Russell's political philosophy, as it turns out. <laughs> Very ironic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things, you know, Everything comes full circle, I guess. Um, that that experience, of, you know, as a as a liberal arts student, I think is invaluable because you get to explore a lot of things and learn a lot of things, and and um, just being able to read the great books, right? It gives you a, a perspective. A lot of the things we think about today have been thought about by philosophers centuries ago. In in, in some ways, there's nothing new under the sun, although I don't imagine that they would have thought about anything so crazy as Twitter. But uh, <laughs> No. And this is the other part of it, Elliot. This is the other part of it we haven't really talked about. But that is the, 
the echo chambers that we live in and the dangers that they imply. Um, because we are not, as individuals, uh, being very careful about our information sources. Um, you know, one person is watching MSNBC, somebody else is watching The Hill, somebody else is watching TYT, somebody else is watching Fox. We watch, we listen to the things that agree with us. And we're in this, you know, echo chamber of our own def you know, definition of sorts. And then as we click on things uh, on social media, all of our behavior is recorded and that is used to make recommendations. And of course, we're going to get recommendations, you know, to do the same thing you've been doing, to read the same things you've been reading, to listen to the same shows or types of shows that you've been listening to, because that's what you're interested in, right? And so we're, we're unfortunately, you know, becoming more isolated into our little like-minded groups and being less willing to listen to others. Um, when I, you know, listen to what Doris Kearns Goodwin is a historian, she's sometimes on some of the major shows and she's interviewed and um, she talks about a, a cabinet of rivals that Lincoln had, where he believed that the way to make the best decisions was to bring people in with different perspectives, to get people to argue with him, okay? You know, that means using information from a wider range. You know, you can think about, we talk about diversity, but we often talk about diversity in terms of, uh, you know, people and ethnic background and so on. But there's also diversity in terms of ideas. And diversity in terms of ideas is, is one of the most important things that we need to encourage going forward. And that means, yes, as, as difficult as it may be, that means turning on the news from a channel you really don't like. It means reading things that might offend you. It means collecting information from many sources and trying to make a, an informed decision based on that you know, collection of information. You know, even in statistics, you see a difficult um, many people having a difficult time understanding this information selection problem, right? All kinds of time is spent on the sample and generalizing to the population, right? So we know all about sampling variability and we form our confidence intervals and our hypothesis tests and we sample the population, sample the population. But where'd the population come from? Okay, well, the population was selected, okay, by an analyst or a researcher that defined it in certain terms. You know, when you form your knowledge base as a, as a, I, you know, in, in, artificial intelligence expert or natural language processing expert or a knowledge engineer, when you form your knowledge base, you know, how do you do that? Well, you, you take what you know and you form it, but what about what you don't know, right? You know, there's the you know, Jakari window idea, the idea of exploring these areas you don't know. So, so you know, you and I, you know, we, we have a common knowledge of our sinus, okay? That's, that's in the known known 
You know it and I know it, okay? You have things that I don't know. That's in your domain, your, your private knowledge. I have things that you know, you don't know. That's in my private knowledge. You know, so there you have, you look at a fourfold matrix, you've got the, the known and the unknown in each dimension. And then you have the unknown unknown that neither one of us knows, okay? So we need to, in some way, find, a, you know, find, you know, <laughs> develop a way of expanding our knowledge to understand each other better and to find these things that are unknown, you know, to discover the, the, the things we don't even know exist yet. Neither one of us know they exist yet. You know, and let's go back to the, the famous, one of the famous things that you know, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, looking back, a lot of people are concerned about, you know, some of the things he did and some of the recommendations he made. So clearly, you know, weapons of mass destruction being for, foremost among those things. But, you know, one of the interesting things he did was he talked about, you know, the problem that intelligence uh, professionals had in the unknown unknown. He said it was okay if you, if you knew you didn't know something, okay? Because then you knew that you had to go figure it out, okay? But what really burns you in terms of intelligence is when you don't know you don't know something. And, you know, it may sound philosophical, but it's, it's, it's a way of understanding these things and trying to expand your horizons. You know, statisticians are not paying enough attention to the data selection problem. And we as individuals are not paying enough attention to the unknowns and trying to expand our world so that we can better understand it and fill in the gaps. You know, this whole thing, the Jakari window is a, a popular technology in psychology, by the way, where you're looking at, at couples therapy and you have, the, you have you know, 50 adjectives. You give the 50 adjectives, uh, two lists. You, you know, one, the, the, the husband fills out one, the wife fills out the other, and then they look at the things they have in agreement. And then they look at the things they have in disagreement. So you know, we both know that you don't like pizza, <laughs> okay? But I don't know this about you, and you don't know that about me, and those are secrets that we have. And we need to you know, expand our world so we communicate more effectively and start to understand each other more effectively. So you know, this idea you know, goes, it's philosophical in a way, relates to you know, building knowledge bases, um, and it also relates to you know, dealing with individuals and getting along with one another. Basic ideas that, that we could, you know, think about <laughs> and techniques that we could use to, to, to live better lives. Yes, and, and we've gone from the age of an abundance of information to an age of almost misinformation as we are given exactly what we want to see oh, yes. whenever we want. And I was having a great conversation with my friend Andrew Simoncini, who said, you have these corporations that have these agendas and they create a reality that is separate from life 
on these social media platforms for you, catered for you? Well, you know, they're motivated. Was my my view is they're motivated by profit, and they're not always thinking about the the consequences, you know, the collateral damage of social media. Um, in the explanation for the conspiracy theories and the misinformation, in part, is the 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 fact that the social media promote. Um, like-minded people getting together and reinforcing one another. So you, th- you know, what you think is true can be absurd, but you think it's true because of the social pressure and the other people that you're communicating with. It's very sad in a way, and it can lead to, to unfortunate consequences, violence in some, in some cases. Um, I believe that the social media companies, and I, I wrote you know, an op-ed on this, uh, was, it, it highlighted Facebook, but other, other media are, are also susceptible to some extent, certainly. Um, I believe that social media companies should act like publishers. Uh, all the news that's fit to print, okay? That was the, the mantra of the New York Times. And I believe that publishers need to you know, continue to do that. And I think that social media companies should take on the role of publishers and watch over what is in fact being published. Now it's beautiful, it's wonderful. You know, you, that you and I can be in a sense, newspaper, newspaper makers, right? We can have a conversation and it, it, can, go, it can go to the world. And this is beautiful. Anybody can, you know, can post. Anybody can be a blogger. Anybody can make a YouTube video or TikTok or what have you. This is beautiful and it sounds democratic. It sounds great, but there's a downside to it, you know, where we are in, in, in a sense selecting this information and, and not being open to new ideas, not being open to the opinions of others. And, you know, I, I'm looking for leaders that, 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 that have a, a cabinet or group of, of rivals. You know, I want to see that. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not concerned if, you know, Biden has said this a couple of times, he's, he, he wants Republicans to be involved in, in his, his governmental work and putting legislation together, maybe even involved in the cabinet. You know, and I, I'm happy to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that many perspectives are needed in, in order to make sense of this world, first of all, and in order to be, to be good to one another. And ultimately, you know, we've only got you know, so many years on this earth, and, and uh, we should try to do what we can to help one another, to understand one another, and, and that's not going to come by just talking and communicating and listening to the, the people that you like or currently communicate with. I think that comes from being open-minded and, and look around, you know, open your eyes and, and understand where other people are coming from. It's so true. And an example I can think of is we were interviewing our lacrosse coach for 
my senior year, we got a brand new coach and we were interviewing him and we said, what if there's a fight at practice? And he says, I'm fine with it. And our old coach never said that that was okay. He actually didn't like it. And when this coach said that, he explained that you need to see conflict to be able to step back from it and understand each other's perspectives. You need to have that rivalry so you can go to battle with a united front. And if you don't have that united front, then you're nothing. Well, I'm, I'm guessing your, your previous coach was concerned about physical injury, but, but uh, which is you know legitimate concern. But, it's valid. But, but, but uh, disagreements are part. You know, I think that part builds teamwork. You you work through it, right? You work through it, and you come out the other side. You know, respecting one another. And well, I think about you know we get back to the the fact versus opinion thing too. The uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was was saying every you know everyone is entitled to his or her own opinion, um, but not to his his or her own fact right his or her own facts um, and <clears throat> accept the, the the truism that even looking at the same facts we might come up with different analysis it happens it happens you know that's that's what pundits do right they spin yes and that's what you have with with your models that you create and with your track record of not only having the background of both philosophy and data science and everything in between, but you've also written the literature that has formed the basis of many new forms of analytics. I talked to you and you had mentioned to me the first conversation we had that you wrote the book on data analytics used in sports and now it's being used by every single organization in sports and they all have analytics teams dedicated to understanding more about the games well many of them did I, you know my my book uh, is, is not that many years old uh, i think that if you if you wanted to identify a book that that was influential in this area not because it had a lot of analytics in it uh, it was Moneyball, you know, that had a, that got people's attention. Yes. Um, because people could see the, the athletics, you know, versus, <laughs> versus the, the Yankees and, and what they were capable of doing uh, with a much lower budget. You know, of course, the movie you know, hit that home as well, to use a baseball analogy. Um, it turns out, you know, to bring it back, you know, to the, the forecasting, um, one of the reasons I fell into this and was able to execute it as quickly as I did, um, essentially the last two months, was I had worked with sports data before. So uh, I was simulating baseball games, which are much more complicated to simulate than elections. So I had that experience. And I also in, uh, was 2007, uh, in the Great Recession, uh, I during that time, just prior to the Great Recession, I was mostly supporting myself through market research consulting. And then the recession hit, 
And I had two consulting areas of practice. One was site selection and the other was new product development. And when the recession, the Great Recession hit, companies didn't worry about where, where should they open the new site. They didn't need my analysis for that. And they, they knew well how to, you know, which sites to close. They were the ones that weren't selling. Okay, and the you know, companies weren't looking for new products. They, were, you know, they wanted to work with the products they knew worked already. So the, the product design and pricing uh, uh, research went away too. So I had the summer on my hands. And it was around that time, just you know, prior to that, um, a couple months before the summer, uh, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob was a statistics student. He, he left the statistics undergraduate program at Berkeley uh, and decided to do advice on sports betting. And for five years, he was beating the bookies at their own game. And, the wall, and, and finally, to such an extent that the, the bookies decided to change their odds after they saw his, his advice coming out. <laughs> And uh, that got the attention of the Wall Street Journal, and they wrote it up, you know, how he had been so successful for so many years. You know, I had time on my hands, and I've always been, you know, for my whole life, a baseball fan. So I thought, well, if Dr. Bob can do it as a, you know, statistics uh, undergraduate, I should be able to do it too. You know, I have a stat degree and a few other degrees to boot. To boot. You know, why don't I do it? And so I did. And so that entire summer of 2007, I analyzed baseball and I, I put together a book called Without a Tout, uh, which you can still buy from my little publishing company. Um, and that book analyzed baseball data and showed how to, it's, it's called Without a Tout, uh, because the idea is you don't have to have a tout to tell you what to do. Uh, you can have, uh, you can do the analysis yourself. A lot of it was multiple regression, as it turns out. Um, but I you know, did a little feature engineering uh, as well. Um, one of the things that out of that, in addition to understanding how to simulate uh, baseball games, uh, one of the things that came out of it was this renewed uh, faith in markets because I discovered how hard it was to beat the market, how hard it was to beat the bookies. You know, out of you know, you have 30 teams, if they're all playing on the weekend, you've got 15 games, maybe one or two of those games, you've got a chance, you know, where your expected value is greater than, than, uh, than zero. Uh, so you could maybe win money, you know, based upon what you know about the performance of the players and, and how that's different from what the bookies are, are saying or implying by their money lines. But one out of two games, that's a lot of work to go through. It's more complicated than even polls. Yes, and how it, people it, are going yeah. to vote. Yeah, it's much more complicated because in baseball, if you look back at the data, I mean, there's there more than 50 some events can occur with a batter pitcher matchup. Um, whereas with an election, there's just the Democratic or the Republican candidate who wins. So you have a much easier problem to work on than in baseball. Wow. Baseball is more fun, though. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I fully hope to get back to it next year. <laughs> I think we all need it. I mean, we figured out we needed sports more than ever. Also, when you get into the sports side of it and you have a season like you do now where there's so many variables that we have never encountered before, do you see the analytics is going to be even more useful in the future? Or do you think that teams are going to go more by their gut? I don't see baseball in particular. I don't see them moving away from analytics, but I do see substantial challenges ahead. And a lot of the, that, that challenge uh, comes from what's happening on the field with the shifts. So you know, for, for centuries, we've been collecting data on the position of players and, and where the ball goes based upon the player that happens to field the ball. Um, but everything has changed because now we have you know, a third baseman playing behind, you know, playing in the mid outfield between, between first and second. So how do you record that event? Is that something that went to the third baseman or is it something that went to right field? Uh, this is a major issue. And I think what's going to happen is that in order to do this, in order to do analytics correctly for baseball into the future, it's going to have to be based on the um, geographical information system model, where we look at the position on the field, we look at the, the entire field, and then locate the players on the field, wherever, wherever they happen to be, whatever they're called in terms of uh, position. Okay, we look at where they're playing at that moment and where the ball is hit at that moment. So the data collection part of this is going to get much more complicated, uh, as is the analysis. Um, I, I don't think analytics is going away, but it's going to change substantially in order to be useful. Absolutely. And, and it becomes, like you mentioned, so much more geographical where you have the analytics of hockey or football, where there are different events that could occur and shifts at any moment. And they're just added data points. And you're going to be seeing yeah. something that on the defensive side of baseball as well, where I feel like it was already there with the offensive side where a pitch can go in so many different locations and have so many different mm -hmm. types of pitches. Those variables could be already there. Whereas now we're going to be seeing it even more geographically for the defense. Yeah. Well, you know, baseball has one thing going for it at least, and that is discrete events uh, rather than continuous play. Uh, so in that regard, baseball is easier to analyze, um, a more manageable problem, really. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for many years, it's, it's been modeled, baseball's been modeled as a, a finite Markov chain, uh, where you have just so many events that you keep track of in terms of the position of the batters, of the, of the, of the batting team players on the bases uh, and where they move. Um, because they go in sequence from base to base. Uh, and there are just so many, what is it, 26 uh, different configurations. You know, if you look at the position of the, of the 
players on the bases and the number of outs. So you have a you know, transition probability matrix that you can put together and analyze, and it is finite. Um, that makes baseball an easier sport to analyze. Um, but as, as I'm saying, it's becoming more difficult in terms of what is the event. Um, it was a couple years ago, I was able to, to model the, the World Series between the Dodgers and the Astros. The World Series is being looked at again since we've discovered things about the Astros. But before we've discovered those things, I was looking at those data and analyzing those data to utilize batter pitcher matchup information from an entire uh, season uh, to predict what would happen in the World Series. This has been a major void uh, among the professional teams because you have American League teams that may not have, have met with National League teams. I really enjoyed this. And all of our conversations, I just want to thank you, one, for always being an incredible mentor to me for not only my time as an economics major through my capstone, but I appreciate you reaching out and also allowing me to have this conversation with you on my podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, let me know if you need uh, help on, on this. <clears throat> but it's been a pleasure talking with you tonight. And uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Yeah, take care. You too. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your incredible experiences with the audience and with myself over the years. It was incredible to learn from you, and I look forward to our conversations in the future. Next week, we're going to give you a surprise. We tried to get Peter DeSimone, but he was a little busy, so we'll try again next week. But I look forward to having you all back. I appreciate you. I love you all. See you next week.